use that uh, in case there's any litigation associated with uh, these meetings? <laughs> no, this actually. This is part of your defense? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, to be quite honest with you, if anybody from Synod headquarters got a hold of some of these recordings, they probably would not oh. defend me very well from some of my doctrinal positions. Nah, but, I see. <laughs> uh, yeah. As one, I, there's another pastor. I talk about this pastor a lot, but he, uh, he was very influential in my life. He has a podcast that he does as well. And I, I often hear him remark on the podcast, oh, well, don't let anybody at Synod HQ get a hear hold of this. Yeah, don't let them hear this. Because, the higher up, the higher, higher. Yeah, some people tend to be, I don't know. Well, any, I'm not. We don't need to go there. Uh, okay, let us pray. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, you despise nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We are jumping ahead a little bit in prayers. If you recognize that collect, you know it's definitely not from Epiphany Tide. That's the collect for Ash Wednesday. And the reason why that is our opening prayer is because we're starting to look at confession and absolution now. And that prayer, that collect, is uh, an excellent one for this occasion because it sums up most of what we're going to be talking about today and gives you a foretaste of what's going to be coming in the next couple weeks as we uh, progress. Uh, before we progress, I just want to see if you have any questions about anything from last week, um, or just anything in particular. I was wanting to know, with the Lutheran faith, if yes. the baby is not baptized and they pass away, what happens? Yes, okay, that's a good question. Um, if, if a baby is not baptized, and if it dies before baptism, what happens? Um, there's two scenarios for that. Uh, the first scenario is a miscarriage. So a baby that dies in utero. The second scenario is a baby that has been born and then dies outside of the womb before being brought to baptism. Uh, those are really the two scenarios, and the answer to both of them is fairly similar. Um, firstly, you entrust the child to the grace of God. You know that uh, from the mouth of the Lord himself that he desires not the death of a sinner, uh, but that all would turn to him and live. Uh, you also know that God knits together children in the womb. So to say that within the Christian household, uh, devout mother and father have a child, and then the Lord rips the child away and throws it to hell is really an unconscionable position. Um, so there is there's a certain degree of grace and mercy that is afforded. The other thing, and I think the bigger thing to consider, is also this. Um, whose work is faith? 
That's the question really that you have to start with. Whose work is faith? God's. Correct. It's God's work. Now, there are two answers to that. You can say it's man's work, or you can say that it's God's work. If it's man's work, that child is damned. But if it's God's work, well, then that opens a whole new door of possibilities that are much, uh, much better. So the child in the womb is brought with parents to church, hears the word, even in the womb. St. John the Baptizer leaps in the womb at the presence of the word. Uh, the, the word is working upon those children even as they are in the womb. So the child that dies in utero still has the working of the word, uh, still has the kindling of faith and the desire to be brought to baptism even though it isn't. So there's comfort in the knowledge that that child is still receiving the word and that the grace of God is still there and that the presence of God is still with that child through the word. Uh, in the case of the... Uh, uh, oh, and I will say this too. This is, this is also why we can have a baptism, and a baptismal liturgy, wherein the infant speaks without speaking. When you can ask an infant, do you desire to be baptized, and hear voices of adults say, yes, I desire to be baptized. Uh, and you don't go, well, that's kind of, I've never heard an infant speak like that before, because it's not really about the, it's not so much about the question, like, do you want to be baptized? No, I don't really. Oh, okay. Well, the, like, the, the question assumes that, yes, of course you want to be baptized because it's the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch sort of has an inkling and a curiosity and knows, you know, there's something to this Holy Scripture business. There's something to all of this. And the word starts coming. And in this case, as, the, uh, as Philip begins to expound the scriptures from Isaiah about baptism, and about Christ, the response of the Ethiopian eunuch is the response of every single child that is brought to the font. There's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? See, the thing is, uh, baptism comes not, as, not so much as a requirement, but as a gift. This is the thing you'll find with Lutheran theology. It's all about gift. Um, the, the late great professor Norman Nagel just died a few months ago. Uh, but one of his big sayings is, you are nothing if not given to. Which is sort of a paraphrase of what Luther says when he says, we are all beggars. So that's your lot in life, is that you are given to. You are a beggar. You are always a recipient. And when you are a recipient of the good things that Christ gives you, baptism included, when you know what it does for you, when the word has worked on you and you see Christ and you say, I want him, I want, what, I want the goods, then your only response is to say, bring me to that font because that's where I'm getting in. It's like going to the hospital and saying, I want that medicine that's in there. Uh, and they say, well, you need to be admitted first. And you say, if, is that how I get the medicine? And they say, well, yeah, you're admitted. And then we let you in. And you say, well, admit me then. You know, it's not that... There's the requirement that if you're not admitted, you're going to be punished. It's the gift of if you're admitted, you also get all of these things. So that's uh, the thing about baptism. Now, for the infants that, that um, don't make it, we still speak of the faith that has been worked by the word because everything is external. That's really one of the great benefits of a theology that understands God as a giver of gifts and a theology that understands man as the 
one who receives from God, the one who is acted upon, because the responsibility does not lie on you, meaning that there isn't an opportunity for you to fail. So to say that the child failed in believing because it couldn't make vocal confession of what it believed, and then, well, because it couldn't make a vocal confession, it's damned, uh, you can turn it around and say, well, the child, if it had voice to speak, would have sang the praises of the God who has already been working on that child. Um, faith comes by hearing. And that's really important that, that to understand it as hearing because hearing is passive language. I say this a lot in Bible class, but there's a difference between listening and hearing. If you tell your children to listen to you, you want them to be active about sitting and paying attention and clinging, on, clinging to every word that you speak. But if your children hear you speaking, it's a passive event, that you're speaking something and they happen to hear it because it hits their ear. So faith comes by hearing, by the preaching of the word, and that word comes and touches. That's, again, if you had to sum up the gospel, if you had to define the gospel in one word, it's touch. It's the touch of Jesus. That, the touch of Jesus is four words. One word is touch, four words is the touch of Jesus. But that's what it is. Uh, and that also comes by the preaching, that the word comes in and touches you. Does that, I know that was a lot. <laughs> okay. I'll, this is the short answer. If I have a parishioner who has a child and who has a miscarriage or the child dies in the hospital after the birth, I will give that child a Christian burial. And I will preach a funeral sermon for that child. And uh, it'll be the same kind of funeral sermon that I would preach for an adult who has been baptized. Now, if there's a person in, who is in my parish who has a three-month-old or six-month-old or one-year-old or two-year-old child that still hasn't been baptized, then I go to them and say, listen, you, we need to get this taken care of. Because like I said last week, one of the reasons, and this has been the history of the church, but this vocabulary used during the time of the Reformation by Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's right-hand guy. He wrote the Oxford Confession and things like that. Um, why do we baptize babies? Because they die. I mean, why do we baptize anybody? Because they die. But, in, but, in, but when you look at an infant, why do you baptize an infant? because an infant dies. So we rush them to the font to make sure that they have the same gifts and are admitted into the, into the corporate body in the same way as everyone else. Does that, mm -hmm. okay. All right, any other questions? My uh, niece, uh, Barb's sister's uh, daughter, mm -hmm. <coughs> Uh, their first child, uh, when her she had her eighth month checkup, she had a month to go. Mm -hmm. It was found that this child was deceased, and she had to carry that kid for another month, knowing that it was deceased. You talk about tough. <laughs> yeah, that was tough. Yeah, it's. There's a lot of hardship that goes along with this life. And it's always 
amplified when it involves children. Because they're really, you know that they're not, but there is a sense that the child is more innocent than an adult. That they've had less opportunity to do good, less opportunity to, uh, to live and to experience and to learn less opportunity for any of that. And like I preached on the 29th for the Feast of the Holy Innocents, it, it's more sad because with an adult you can say, well, you know, they lived a good life and this is the natural course, blah, 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 blah. But with a child, there's nothing really that you can say. It's, death is always unnatural, but it feels more natural in the case of an adult than with a child. And with a child you can't say, well, that's the past. There's a whole new generation. No, because that is the generation. That is the new generation. So it's, it's always much more difficult uh, to go through trials <clears throat> like that when, it, when they involve children. And I don't know how one could ever do it without looking to the grace of God either. To think of a God who doesn't really want anything but to make sure you jump through all the right hoops and if you don't, well, it doesn't matter how old you are, I'm done with you. To think of God like that really goes against his character as it has been revealed. And I think it's shameful of the church to do that. I talked about this on Sunday, but I have experience with some of our brothers and sisters in the Wisconsin Synod who take a very hard stance that Jesus wants you to be baptized and so if you're not, then Jesus doesn't want anything to do with you. And I think that that's horrendous. Um, I think it's a really callous way to deal with that. I think you have to be a certain type of callous person to look a, a mother, especially, who has miscarried in the eye and tell her, well, there's no hope for that child. I mean, that's... That stance is always a lot, of, a lot easier for somebody else's problem yes, it is. than it would be for your own problem. Yes, it is. Uh, one has uh, other uh, styles of consideration when it's yep. pointed in. Here's, this is the bottom line. Does baptism save you? Yes. Yes or no? Yes. Does Jesus want you to be baptized? Yes. Does baptism give what Jesus says that it gives? Yes. Yes. Is baptism the way by which God has indicated he wants to deal with his people? Yes. yes. Water, historically, is the way God wants to deal with his people. Look through scripture. You can't hardly throw a rock without hitting a narrative involving salvation through water. Water is a really important thing in scripture. It's how God has chosen and has declared that he wants to interact with his people. That being said, is if God desired, can he also save apart from baptism? Yes. Is that the norm? No. When God says, I'd like you to do it this way, you, your job is to say, yeah, your job is like last week. Do whatever he tells you. And, and love and obedience, we'll talk about this further on in the class, not today, further on in the course. Um, love and obedience really aren't that different. So that when Jesus says, hey, be baptized, you don't feel that you have to be baptized because it's an obligation. Rather, when Jesus says, hey, I want you to be baptized, because you have faith in Christ, because you fear, love, and trust in him, you know that when he says, hey, 
this is a really good thing for you. You should do this. You just say, you know what? If you say it's good for me, I'm going to do it. Because I love you and I know that you love me and you'll never hurt me and you'll never be against me. And if you want me to do something, well, then I'll certainly do it. It's not a burden to do what Jesus says. It's a joy to do what Jesus says. His commands are not commands so that you do them because you're afraid of punishment. They're commands that are given out of love because he knows what's good for you. Like, you know, if I told you, don't go drink a gallon of bleach, you don't say, well, I guess I won't do it, but only because I'm afraid of what you'll do to me if I don't drink the bleach. All of us here know that it would be very bad for you to drink a gallon of bleach, and for me to tell you not to is just me saying, listen, I, this is something that's really bad for you, and there are so many things that are better for you. Follow me, and I'll show you where the things that are that are good for you, and this just isn't one of those things. And you say, oh, okay, that's fine. It's not a burden to obey that command, because you know that what the Lord has in mind for you is always for your good. All right. So, with your baptism then, picking up where we sort of left off last week, there are a lot of advantages for you. Many doors open now that you have baptism. It's like mailing in the... mailing in the... Uh, oval teen box tops to get your little orphan Annie secret decoder ring and you get the certificate that comes along with it that says you're now a part of this club and that you get all of the rights and privileges therein. Uh, baptism is like that. Now you've got the seal and it tells you and everybody who sees you, hey, this guy, he's in. All of the rights and privileges that are offered here, this guy has. And one of the things that baptism does to you in connection with the creation of faith uh, is that it opens your eyes. Uh, it opens your eyes so that you see sin and that's why you hate sin. And that you desire not to do sin. You see sin for what it is because you see good for what good is. And it regenerates your will so that you can, like I said last week, come to that fork in the road and say, well, this is really bad for me and this would be what I should do. And you can strive to do that thing which you know is good. Um, so there is a natural movement and progression of faith. Faith is never a static thing. Faith is always in motion. Um, first of all, because to be of the faith means you're a pilgrim. You follow Jesus on the way. Uh, you move where Jesus moves. Even baptism is movement from one place to another. So you're, you're a pilgrim in a sense and always on the move. Um, so in this sense then, the natural progression, especially when we look at the liturgy as the framework of the faith, or Really, it's the opposite, that the faith serves as framework of the liturgy, that from the invocation, which really is all about baptism, everything there is, is baptismal, into confession and absolution makes perfect sense. Why? Because you're brought in, you have the name, and you see. And the Lord would have you hate evil and love what is good, he says in, uh, in Amos 5. And all throughout Scripture, this idea of uh, hate evil, love good, Flee from evil, touch the good things. Don't touch bad things, touch good things. The, the idea of touch and staying with what's good, it's pervasive throughout Scripture. 
in a way that's kind of what the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are about. Don't touch these things, touch these things. Flee from evil and run to good. And here's how to do it. Um, so confession is the natural progression then of faith, because now you have the eyes of faith that see the new man who is to daily emerge and arise to live before God uh, in righteousness and purity forever. Uh, but there's a war. Uh, Romans chapter 7, this is um, pretty well known. St. Paul talks about the good that I would do. It's the very thing that I do not do. And uh, that which I do not want to do, that is the thing I do. That, as you'll find in the Christian faith, there are a great many paradoxes. How does God make strong? Well, he makes strong by making weak. Uh, how does God make great? Oh, well, he uses the simple things to make great. Like, consider baptism in that sense. How strange is baptism? That God decides, well, I'm going to make you my child, and I'm going to do it by sprinkling you with some water. It's really kind of anticlimactic, according to human reason, because you want something really great. Like Jesus going into Jerusalem. Why is he riding on a donkey? He's, he's, he's not riding in like a king. You want something big and pompous and showy and great, but he does the simple things. Um, so St. Paul talks about here at the end, uh, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The Psalms often talk about delighting in the law. And again, we'll talk about the law when we get there in the course. There's a whole big thing we're going to do, talk about the Ten Commandments and the law and what it is and what it isn't. Well, it's got to be good, though. Because God would have you delight in the law. The psalmist would have you delight in the law. The confession of faith is always that I delight in the law of the Lord. I, that the law is a good thing. I want it. But it is... The one who wills to do good, the inward man. And Paul uses that language, the inward man. We use language like the, the new Adam, the new man. So in the catechism language, the, a new man should daily emerge and arise. Well, that's what we're talking about. The regeneration of the self, the washing and rebirth, as St. Paul writes to Titus, that takes place in baptism. Now here you are, though, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. This is kind of important too because of the distinction between your mind and your uh, members. What do, you, what do you immediately think of if I talk about your mind versus your body? People who talk, well, my mind, my mind, my mind. What is that? Well, that's, that's your reasoning, your, your thought process. Okay, yeah, thought, reason, <coughs> intellect. But you, uh, you have this uh, desire to do the things that are appropriate and correct, but yet you still don't do those with your hands, with your voice, action. Sure, yeah. Think of it like this. So Paul talks about the mind or the will, that there's something that's been regenerated in there. And, and I just said that a minute ago, that the will is regenerated. That instead of now only wanting to do the bad things, now your will says, you know though, I know what the good things are and I know I should do those things. But, so in that sense then the will is kind of elevated. But the flesh is still clumsy and blundering. Uh, 
it's like having the mind of Stephen Hawking but trapped inside the body of a toddler. You can think really well and you know all of the things that you should be able to do and your body just can't do it. Uh, that's what it's like. You're kind of clumsy. There's, I like that he does this, makes a distinction between the flesh and the mind, the will. Um, the flesh is also that which will die and decay and return to the dust. That there is corruption in the flesh the of good. man. Because there's corruption in your father, Adam. This is, and this comes from St. Augustine, that Saint, or, uh, in Adam, all mankind falls, as St. Paul says. In one man, all men fell, because your flesh is his flesh. That when he sins, you sin, even before you even were a glimmer in your parents' eyes. Because your flesh is his flesh. That the flesh is handed down. The good that I would. I Correct. So, but now your will is regenerated in baptism. And now you know that good that you want to do. And your clumsy body just won't let you. Which is worse. Not knowing or having that knowledge that what you're doing is bad. Or knowing of the good and still doing the same exact thing bad. I think not knowing. <laughs> not knowing is worse. Not knowing, knowing is worse because if you, because if you don't know that you're in trouble, do you recognize the person coming to rescue you? The house isn't burning. Don't worry, you say to the fireman as he comes in to save you, because I don't realize that the house is on fire. I don't need I don't need the life preserver. I'm not drowning. Glug 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 glug. If you don't recognize that there is something bad going on then you don't recognize when salvation comes. You don't recognize the gift that salvation is. You don't recognize where the means are found that will help you in your endeavor. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. and, and this is where we start getting into confession and absolution, really, because what does the regenerate man now do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now there's a war. And the flesh more often than not beats out the mind, beats out the will. So the, like I said before, the old Adam is daily drowned. Yes but he's a pretty good swimmer, and at the end of the day, his head is still sort of at the top, gasping for air. The sinner paradox. Correct, yeah, the simul justus et peccator, the state of simultaneously being both saint and sinner, that, that you can be a regenerate person who, who still falls into sin, which is why I don't say, be holy, I say, strive after holiness. You are holy. In baptism, you're set aside by the Lord, you're marked as His, you're holy, but you strive to be holy in that you don't say, well, here I am, and I'm going to sit here like a slug and not ever do anything. Well, I'm baptized, I don't need to do anything else. No, you strive after holy things. Go, where are the holy things? Find them and go to them and avail yourself of them. Strive to do good. That means you will fail, but it means that you don't stop trying, even when you do fail. Uh, so confession and absolution, then, is the natural progression because the eyes have seen and the heart now knows the war that is taking place. And where do you go? Uh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, Jesus Christ, my Lord, he will. 
You despise nothing you have made. Forgive the sins of all who are penitent. And he says, yes, of course, because I've already promised you that I will. So there's confession and absolution then, uh, from baptism into the knowledge of sin and grace and the movement towards the food that will continue to protect and strengthen you in that endeavor. So this is why Luther says, when I urge you to go to confession, I'm doing nothing else than urging you to be a Christian. If I have brought you to the point of being a Christian, I have thereby also brought you to confession. For those who really desire to be true Christians, to be rid of their sins, and to have a cheerful conscience, already possess the true hunger and thirst. You're, you're baptized, yes. Do you know that you have the forgiveness of sins? Yes. Yes, but do you know that you still daily sin much and are in need of the Lord's yes. grace? Yes. yes. So then when the Lord says, hey, are you somebody who's been forgiven but who knows that you have sins and you need to avail yourself of a good gift? Well, boy, have I got a deal for you. Come here. And there's a great big neon sign with arrows that point to it. Then you say, oh, that's the place where I'm going to go. That makes perfect sense. It's not, again, it's not a, there's not a burden associated with going to confession and absolution. It's just the natural progression of being a Christian. Oh, yes, you know, I haven't really done so well this week, and I know that the Lord hears uh, the cries of the penitent and that he will offer mercy. So I'll go and I'll, I'll take all of my sins and I'll give them to Jesus and I'll let Jesus take care of them because he's the one who said he was going to do that. Uh, so that's, that's confession and absolution. Um, the Didache as well says, on the Lord's day come together for the breaking of the bread and for the Eucharist after confessing your sins. Well, it's the second thing in the, in the liturgy, the confession of sins, that's how we begin. If I do a shut-in visit, we do two things. I do confession and absolution and administer the sacrament. There's the progression of things. Now, we're going to talk a little bit here about the nuts and the bolts of what confession is um, and sort of what it's not. The, the big word that's associated with confession and is pervasive throughout confession is repentance. So that's where we're going to start. What is repentance? What does it mean to be repentant? Well, um, Repentance is twofold, really. The first part of repentance is contrition, which is the the feeling of remorse, the recognition of sorry sin. for your sin. Yeah, that you're sorry for your sin. A contrite heart, um, part of the liturgy. I don't. I don't. Let us draw together with a contrite heart. Yeah. This says with a true heart. There's somewhere where it says a contrite heart, though. Let us draw near together with a contrite heart. And uh, that's the heart that says, Oh, dear, I recognize in myself, because of the regenerate nature that baptism has worked in me, that I really haven't been that great. And, I'm, and I know that I can do better, and I want to do better. And, oh, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry. This is a big problem. This, the sorrow over sins, the, the pain that is associated with sin. That is contrition, guilt, guilt and shame. And um, you know, guilt's not always a good thing, but in the sense of confession and absolution, guilt can be a, a good thing because guilt will, um, guilt will tell you what to confess. When you're racked by guilt, it's usually with one or a couple things that really have been eating away at you. And then what do you do with the things that eat away at you? Well, 
Your guilt tells you these are the problems, and you say, okay, Jesus, here are the problems. Uh, so that's when it's good. Now, when it's bad is post-confession and absolution, when your sins have been absolved and when you still have the guilt of the things that have taken place. And the natural... Um, thing that the heart says when it's burdened by that kind of a guilt is, well, I don't really know if the Lord has forgiven those sins. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I confessed my sin, but it's still nagging me. I'm not sure confession really did what I think it ought to do. Or, mm -hmm. or, you know, it's, yeah, this is why we... Uh, feelings are not an indication of effect. Do you feel like your sins are forgiven? Well, some days you may. I'm not saying that you won't ever feel like your sins are forgiven. Some days you may. But there will be times when you don't. You don't feel like you're forgiven. There's no, You're absolved and then you get up and you walk away and you, or you leave church on Sunday and you think to yourself, well, I don't feel any different. Um, the feeling is not the indication of effect. Do you feel like you're baptized? Do you feel like God is with you? Do you feel like you're forgiven? I mean, what does it even feel like to be forgiven? So, in a sense, God addresses that because he gives you things to feel he gives you water to touch, so we have it in the nave, so you can play around in it on your way in and out of church. And you can feel that water and remember what it's done for you. you ha we have the body and the blood. The Lord works through means. There's something that physically touches you, that you feel. That the host is on your tongue, the, uh, the blood poured into your mouth, across your tongue. You feel it. So there is a feeling associated with that that says, Hey, God really is near you. How do you know? Because he touched you. Um, but the mental idea of feeling, uh, do I feel forgiven? I don't feel like forgiveness worked today. I'm still feeling guilty about my sins. Well, what would Luther say about that? Well, if you don't feel like your sins are forgiven, then go back and ask for forgiveness again. And keep coming back again and again and again and again until that word finally hits you dead between the eyes that says, the Lord has taken care of it. I forgive your sins. And eventually that's going to hit you and you're going to go, hey, you know what? The Lord has told me that my sins are forgiven. And even if I don't feel like it, I know that I can rely on the Lord's word because he's never lied to me and he never will. Uh, when the Lord speaks, he speaks the truth and he speaks effect. The, 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 when the Lord speaks, it causes something to take place. So, uh, sin, guilt can be a good thing. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, May the memory of my sin be so terrible to me that I never desire to commit it again. Now, that's where guilt can be a good thing, but uh, here's where it's bad, is the memory of sins that never go away. Sin will always leave a dirty mark on the memory. Uh, that's one of the tools that the devil often uses. Because the things, I don't care if it's 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago that you did something, sometimes you'll just wake up and you'll remember that really bad thing that, that you did. And all of a sudden, 50 years later, it's plaguing your conscience. Because sin, sin leaves a black mark on your memory. 
if your memory is like a timeline, there's big events along the timeline that are sins, and they are there. And when it's there, it's there. So your memory always has those marks, and uh, the devil uses those to his advantage by saying, oh, look, you remember when you did this? Blah, 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 blah. And then you start to fall into despair because you say, oh, yeah, well, you're right, I did do that, and I did do that, and I did do that. But the toll booth doesn't exist that the devil would have you believe in. The toll booth that says, well, you really want to be righteous, that's fine, but then you have to come to me and you have to make amends for all of those sins that you committed. It, there is no such toll booth. Because you're riding the expressway of the crucifixion of Christ. There's no tolls there because everything's already been paid for. The blood that has been spilled is really for the sin of the world. Uh, so, yes, sins leave dirty marks, but baptism is a washing and a renewal, and the blood of Christ comes and also cleanses you. Have you seen the movie Ben-Hur? Oh, yeah. So yeah. long ago that I forgot. I love sixty. Yeah, I love that movie. That's great. Don't there I think they remade it, but I not even gonna bother with it because the old one is so good. Have you seen it? Oh, you gotta spend it's like a four yeah, hour way, movie. Way I own it. If you ever want to borrow it, you just tell me. But you have to you have to kinda commit to a whole afternoon to watch it because it's a big like four hour it has an intermission. Pardon me? You've met my kids, right? Hey, if you want somebody to babysit them so you can watch Ben-Hur, you give us a call. <laughs> okay? But so there's a great scene in, in Ben-Hur. One of the things I love about that movie is that all of the stuff that's happening to uh, Judas Ben-Hur is uh, taking place at the same time as Jesus being around and preaching. And you never see Jesus' face, which I think is a really great cinematic touch. So he's on the mount. You see them, they're walking somewhere, and then the camera sort of pans, and in the distance you see this guy from the back on the mountain, and there's a whole crowd that he's, that he's talking to. And all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And his wife and his daughter uh, become lepers. And they're in this leper colony, and they're, they run away and they're hiding in a cave and it's on Good Friday, and Christ is crucified and dies, and then the earth splits open and there are quakes and all kinds of events, and then a huge thunderstorm hits, and the rain pours down, and Christ is hanging on the tree, and you still really only see him in the distance, and the blood starts to wash off of him, and it rolls in this little stream into the cave where Ben-Hur's leprous wife and daughter are washing, and they come out of that water cleanse of their leprosy. And I think that's such a great little scene because that's really what's taking place. That the blood of Christ really does come over you and really does wash you. You're kind of a, you're kind of a nasty person. You're covered in all kinds of barnacles and unsightly things. And the blood of Christ comes in and sort of like you know, washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, but on a grand scale, he says, well, just sit down here and I'll, I'll take care of you. And he scrubs you down. Do reference to water again, isn't it? Always. Yeah. Well, look at what what comes out of Jesus' side. Blood and water. Blood and water. That's also why what's given at the font is nourished at the altar. Blood and water always go together. The water of baptism goes along with the blood of the altar. They do not, are never <coughs> separate. I wonder if there's a a, a, a positive uh, twist to remembering to the memory that's got these highlights along 
or you've done particularly stupid things or incorrect things or, mm-hmm. or grievous sins, and all those, although those have been forgiven, you still have them in your memory to rely on as, is there something you can learn from this not to be doing oh, yeah. X, Y, and Z? Because well, that's what St. Bernard says, the, his prayer, May the memory of my sins, O Lord, be so, or so terrible to me that I never desire to do them again. That when you look at those black marks, you remember how terrible they are, and you go, yeah, I really don't ever want to do that again. Sort of like, you know, when you get spanked, right? The idea of being spanked is that, well, you remember what that felt like when you did that thing, and then you maybe don't want to do that thing again. Or when you have to be the one to go out and bring the belt to your parents or go out and pick your own switch. Boy, you don't want to have to do that. You don't want to get caught. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, yeah, so you at least don't want to get caught. But in this case, uh, you, there's really no place to hide from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really no way of getting away with anything. Because it's sort of like you do it right in front of him, and he just kind of stares at you and goes, "Really? I mean, I was right here. You didn't. You weren't even trying." You're way uh, out of my leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but here's the thing. So, um, when the black marks get to be a burden to you, when guilt becomes a bad thing, uh, when it's troublesome, when the devil starts to use that to his advantage. This is another great thing from Luther's commentary on Galatians. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares to you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. So the devil will tell you, hey, remember you did this and this and this? You say, yes, I did it. Okay, well, that's passed and done with, and Christ has washed that sin away. What, what else do you got? What else are you going to charge me with? <coughs> really, you've got the best defense, <coughs> the best defense attorney in town. <laughs> and that's the thing. The devil's going to try and get you to serve time, but you don't have to worry about it. You can sit back and you can just sit <coughs> coffee because Jesus has got it covered. <coughs> now, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want you to think that that means we can, we can be flipping about sin. Yeah. Uh, of course. But that's really sort of the image. When the devil throws your sins back in your face, you can say, ah, yes. But Jesus has to, Jesus has taken care of that. I, if you want to take it up with somebody, you take it up with him because I just do what the boss tells me. Um, in short, you know, you tell the devil to go to hell. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Um, so... Now we're going to look at this. We're going to look at three things. And you, actually, you don't need your hymnal for that because we're going to do it this way. I've got a handout here. There's just one today. Um, we're going to look at some theology by Winnie the Pooh. See, look at this. You didn't know what you were getting into coming here. You didn't think you'd be learning all about what it means to be a Christian by reading Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is not a kid's book. No, it is not. I, I enjoy Winnie the Pooh oh, yeah. more and more the older that I get. In <coughs> fact, uh, Carolyn, I have the audiobooks. And when Carolyn and I drove up to Wisconsin, we were listening to Winnie the Pooh. Because she had never, she never read them or heard them before. So here's what we're going to do. This is, this is just a little handout uh, that explains to you this idea of what confession is. So we talk about re- there's repentance, right? And then 
uh, part of repentance is that you have contrition, and then repentance proper, which is uh, in the Greek metanoia, which a turning away. So you can you can say to your son, "Hey, I'd really like you metanoia, have a change of heart, turn back to me." Uh, so repentance is more than confessing your sins alone, but it is also turning away from your sins. Hey, think back to the beginning of class, Amos five, <gasps> love, good, hate, evil. So repentance is saying, may the memory of my sins be so great that I never, or be so terrible to me that I never wish to do them again. That's repentance. And then, of course, you know, when you look at the catechism, what is confession? Well, confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and secondly, that we receive absolution. Um, so today is just the confession bit, because we'll talk more about absolution, how that works next week. But uh, we're going to turn also then to Luke chapter 15. Probably the greatest of all the parables that deal with confession and absolution. Oh, we're going to run out of time, I'm sure. You said what? 15, 1-5, yeah. Tra uh, verse 11 is where we'll start here. And um, if you're lucky, your editorial heading will say the parable of the lost Son? Prodigal. So parable of the prodigal. Yeah. I was... Well, anyway. That's just, just my personal preference. I, I think it's better with lost. But, um, think about this question too as we go through this. Who's the real prodigal in this account? Who's, the, who's really the one who's lost? The one that's dead. Yeah. It's both of them. Both of them. Okay. That's the trick. Who, who, is the, who is the lost son? Who is the prodigal? And this is why the... Good morning. Sorry, hey, if you, want, if you want treats. What's yeah. that? If you want treats or coffee. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I might do that. I might have to do that. This is, this is why lost works, because lost directs you to the sons, but prodigal is also fine, but because prodigal also directs you to the father. The father's pretty prodigal, too. It's a strange parable. It's not just about the sons. Well, they're all three prodigals. Yes. So let's, let's take a look at this, then. Okay, here's, this is confession absolution. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, I want to stop there for a second and ask you this. What are the most remarkable things about this verse? Already. Well, the other son got a share too. Yes, and what is the order of the sons? This is the second one. Yes! So he doesn't, you know, the first son is the one who really receives the inheritance. He receives the greater portion. The second son doesn't receive as much. So he, as the second son, then doesn't get as much as the first son, mm -hmm. but he speaks for the first son because the inheritance comes to the first first and then to the second. So he not only speaks for himself, but he also ends up inadvertently speaking for his older brother. But he's speaking out of turn too. Who is the younger to make the demand? He's nobody. But is there a demand until the father uh, passes from the scene? Well, he makes the demand, give me 
give me my inheritance. Give me the no, portion that is mine. What is the inheritance? There is no inheritance until the father passes from the scene. Is it? Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, in this sense, you're, you're helping me to get at one of the other points that I want to make, which is when the son says, give, <coughs> give me my inheritance, what is he really saying? I want you to die. Yes. Yeah, let's I want you to I want mm -hmm. you to die. You are nothing to me. You're dead. You mean nothing to me. All that I want from you is the things that you're going to give me when you die. So you're as good as dead to me. I Drop want, dead. I want my part of your estate except yeah. you don't have an estate. Yet. <laughs> yeah. So that's his 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 request of his father really is not for goods. His request is, "Hey, I really wish you would just drop dead." And then what does his father do? His father drops dead. Well, he gives him the estate anyway. He drops dead. There is no estate without the death of the father. But the father divides it up and gives it away anyway, which means that the father heeds the request of his son and effectively dies. Not uh, figuratively, not, not literally. Right, no, he's still alive, but the <coughs> request of the son is dropped dead and the father says, okay, mm -hmm. I'll do that for you. So, um, the first thing that you note is that the father begins this whole deal by meeting the demand of his son. By meeting the demand of his son. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now this really um, is quite the picture for the Jewish crowd. Yeah, the pig. I was going to say, because the, the yeah. pig, the hog, is anthema or... Yeah, yeah, it's an, it's an mm -hmm. unclean animal. So yeah. now not only is he, in a way, cut off from his father's house, from his kinsmen, he's cut off from his God as well because yeah, he is unclean. He's nobody. Mm -hmm. He's nobody. Nobody gives him anything. He's a nothing. And he wants to eat the food that the animals eat. He's, he's not even like a human being anymore. But when he came to himself... I like that, when he came to himself. He got to thinking one day, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? Question? The answer? They all live well. Yes, they all. Am. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Now here's, so this is his plan now. This is where we start to get into confession and absolution. I will say to my father, Father, I have, I have sinned. sinned against heaven and before you. True? Yes. Yes. Good confession? Yes. Yes. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True? Yes. Yes. Good confession? Yes. Yes. Because it's sincere. Yes. He's not saying it because somebody told him to. He's, he's it's saying the truth. it because he wants to. It's the acknowledgement of the guilt. Mm -hmm. And then he says, make me like one of your hired servants. Ooh. See, now here's where it starts to go off the rail. Why 
does he, why does he decide this is going to be part of his request? Make me to be like one of your hired servants. So what's the question again? Why does he say, make me to be like one of your hired servants? Well, his servants are better off than he is now. Okay. So it's... Yeah. Yes, there's something else to that. Think about what he has confessed already. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me to be like one of your servants. He's not asking to come back as a son, but as a servant. Yes! Mm -hmm. He's not asking to, be, to come back as his son. You don't have to accept me as a son. Mm -hmm. Just make me to be a servant. And if he is a servant, then what does he do? He earns his bread. Mm -hmm. I'll work for it. I'll pay off the debt that I owe you. So then, then uh, who bears the responsibility for the, the makeup? It's him. Whenever you're good and ready to be nice to me, Father, that's fine, but let me earn your kindness. I'll work as one of your hired servants and, I, and I'll earn it. I won't, be your I won't be your child anymore. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Why is this such a big thing, too, for this Jewish audience? Do you know? A man of wealth and status does not run. Hmm. He is stately, and really, people come to him. He does not go out to them. That's shameful for you as somebody who is of such great... It'd be like going to visit the queen or the President of the United States, and you standing in one spot, and them running over to greet you. So, now that picture just doesn't work, because that's not, that's a, that's a person of authority. You approach them. They don't approach you. That's what this is. But he breaks the rule. He runs to his son. And by running to his son, now, not only has he met the demand of his son, but he also takes on his son's shame. Because this is the son that is demanded that he drop dead. Everybody knows it. This is the son who ran away, who comes back, having squandered everything. And what does the father do? Runs to him and kisses him and throws his arms around him. He's taking on himself the shame of this son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. True, yes, great confession, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Yes, absolutely. And then the father does what God does to you. This is so great. He interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put him on it. And the son is standing there. You can almost picture, you know, he's been rehearsing this the whole way. Okay, this is how I'm going to say it. This is how I'm going to say it. I'm going to confess my sins to him, and then I'm going to tell him what I'll do to make amends for my sins. And the father gets there and he says, okay, that's enough. You've confessed your sins. I don't need to hear anymore. That's all. Here, bring, bring him the, the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again because he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now this is really great. Um, the thing that you have to remember here is you can't choose how people love you. You can't choose how people love you. You can't tell people how to love you. 
People will love you the way that they want to love you. And in the case of a father and a son, the father will choose to love his son in the way that he so desires. If he wants to kill the fatted calf and throw the robe on his delinquent son, he will. But his son is not the one who gets to tell him, make me one of your servants. You are... Uh, you're born into the, that love as well. The son never gets to stop being the son. Because he's been born into it. It's not something that's been earned. It's something that's been bestowed. Now what does that sound like? I don't know. wonder if I'm trying to make a point. Who knows? Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, and he would not go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, what's the father doing here? Same thing he did with exactly the other. Exactly the yeah. same thing that yeah. he did with his other son. He goes out <clears throat> to speak with him. He goes out to receive his son, to bring him back. And the son said, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Who said anything about harlots? How does the son know what his brother's been doing? <laughs> Did you ever think about that? This is, this is what sin does to you. Sin will sit inside of you and it will boil and it will fester and it will rot you away from the inside out. And you will always come out in the right when you think about it for a good long time and stew and then go to tell the story about what happened. And the more you think about it and the more you tell it, the more grandiose the whole scenario becomes as that works in you and as you continue to hate and hate and hate and hate that other person. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and rots you out from the inside. This is sin. Your brother, or my, your son ran away and he did this and this and this and this and this and God knows what else he did. <laughs> well, you don't know any of that. Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours already. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This is confession and absolution in a nutshell, really. So uh, let's take a look at this then. Theology by Winnie the Pooh. And this will be our last thing and then we'll head out. I have been foolish and deluded, said Pooh. And I am a bear of no brain at all. You're the best bear in all the world, said Christopher Robin soothingly. Am I, said Pooh hopefully. And then he brightened up suddenly. The end. That's what you say in church. That's what the father says to his son. I've been foolish and deluded. I have lived, uh, I have uh, sinned against you and against heaven. I am a bear of bra no brain at all. I am a poor miserable sinner. 
That's your confession. Simply put, hey, I've done something wrong. I've not, uh, I've not done what you would have me do. And here we have to look at some of this language too. Poor, miserable sinner doesn't mean what you think it means. Poor in spirit. Okay. Yes. Think about the prodigal son. Does he have money even to buy himself food? No. No. He's poor. He's destitute. That's you. You're poor in spirit. You're poor. You have no works, no acts, no excuses, nothing. No nothing. Self, no self-worth. No. None at all. And miserable also doesn't mean it's so this isn't you know, most people read this and say think poor miserable sinner means that you're going, Oh poor poor, poor. I'm just I'm so and I'm miserable, I feel so bad. Oh but that's not what it means at all. It's not a confession of your feeling, it's a confession of your state of being. Are you poor? Yes you are. If you are nothing but given to, if uh, you are a beggar, are you poor? Well, sort of, by definition, yeah. Mm -hmm. And miserable comes from the Latin. There's miserere, um, which is that you are in need of mercy. has nothing to do with how you feel. Like when you go to the doctor and he says, well, how are you feeling? You go, oh, miserable. has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with your state of being. You're poor. You have nothing to offer. And you're miserable. You're uh, in a state wherein you need somebody to give you mercy. Lord, have mercy. That's what you say. You are a bear of no brain at all, really. But you're the best bear in all the world. I like the soothingly part, too, said Christopher Robin, soothingly. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto you, and in the stead and command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I therefore forgive you all your sins. So Jesus comes to you and you say, well, Jesus, I've not been very good. And he says, well, in me you're good. I think you're the best bear of all. That's why I died for you. And here's the best part. Amen. Never... Maybe he didn't think amen was so important, but it is. Um, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? Thank you. Thank you. How do you say thank you uh, in the language of faith? Let it be so. Let it be so. Amen. Hey, am I, said Pooh hopefully, am I, said the Christian hopefully, you really think that I'm okay? You really think that I'm... It, that I clothed in, in your righteousness, you really think I'm the best of all? Oh, yeah, I sure do. You mean you don't want me to be one of your hired servants? No, I want you to be my son. You're born into this. You don't get to tell me how to love you. This is how I'm going to love you. I'm going to put a robe on you. Every day you come back, I'm going to put a robe on you and a ring on you. We're going to have a fatted calf. Uh, let it be so. So that's always the response of faith because faith is given to, you're nothing but given to, you're the beggar, you receive that for which you do not work, but, and that which you do not deserve, but that for which you've asked. And you say, thank you. You say, let it be so. You say, yeah, all right, okay, I'll have some more of that. That's amen. It's a really big deal. That's why it bugs me so much when the congregation has the, you know, you speak your part, and when it gets to the amen, and people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Do you believe that, that you're really getting something here? Are, do you believe that this is a gift that's been given to you? Think about all of the richness here. Am I, said Pooh? Amen, says you. So, this is confession and absolution that in a nutshell, just as it is in the hymnal. I've not been great. Uh, and then the Father comes and cuts you off before you ever get a chance to offer your own excuses or to offer your own solution. And he says, hey, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. You're still my son. Don't worry about it. Jesus has come. I'm going to put his robe on you. And Jesus is the brother now that comes to rejoice with you. In fact, he's the one that provides the feast. Come on in, he says. I'll give you bread and wine. I'll give you the food that never ends. It's the food of heaven. It's going to be really great. It's a real party in there. This is the whole thing. I, I said one time in jest, uh, I described heaven this way, but the more I think about it, the more I really think that it's a, an, an apt description, that it's the wedding feast, the big wedding reception, where the drinks are all on the house. It's not a cash bar. Don't worry about it. Everything's covered, and you don't have to worry about getting up the next morning. Is a good wine have already been made? That's nothing but good wine. <laughs> That's the thing. You can just go and have a good time and be with your Lord and celebrate the, the wedding forever and ever and ever and ever. You never have to worry about, oh boy, I'm going to feel it in the morning. You never have to worry about it. You just get to go and celebrate and receive all the good things and enjoy them to their fullest. Um, all right, so questions. Um, yeah, I wanted to say this too. Confession can sometimes be a painful thing, and rightly so, because you're, you know, you're sort of burning off those, or trying to burn off those marks on the memory. And uh, it's painful to confess your sins, it's painful to admit that you did things wrong, but sometimes pain can be a good teacher. And the reason why I say that is uh, just when you look at the prodigal son, the pain of his experience it was a good teacher when he realized, yeah, you know what, I. I messed up. Um, and so I wanted to share this quote from Mark Twain because I like it so much. But he says, The person that had took a bull by the tail once had learned 60 or 70 times as much as a person that hadn't. And the person that started in to carry a cat home by the tail was getting knowledge that was always going to be useful to him and weren't ever going to grow dim or, or doubtful. <laughs> uh, I think colloquially it's often just uh, cited as, uh, or qu quoted as, uh, pick a cat up by the tail and you'll you'll learn something you never learned in school before. Yeah, but but it's the idea that, you know, cat's got ten really great lessons it's gonna teach you in some long stripes down your flesh and it's not gonna be a comfortable lesson to learn, but you're never gonna forget it. That sometimes pain can be the best teacher, but that always at the end of that there's the healing salve that Christ comes in. He says, Well don't worry, here's the robe, here's the salve, here's the ring. It's all gonna be okay. Just come in here and and we'll just, we'll sit down for a while, we'll have a, we'll have a talk, and then we'll have a party. How does that sound? Cat scratches are uh, painful and inconvenient, but cat bites always, always get infected. Yes. Yeah, you, you have recent experience with that. Well, I've, yeah, that's just, cat bites are nasty. Yeah. All right, questions about anything? <clears throat> this isn't a question. I think it's, it's kind of a layman's view of baptism. And that is from Scripture, uh, in Ephesians we say, 
For by grace are we saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest mm -hmm. any man would boast. Sure. And baptism is one of those gifts. So from that, we see from Scripture, God is giving us the baptism. And so when we start talking about um, a baptism of infants or less than the age of acceptance or something like that, we are misunderstanding baptism. We are looking at baptism and saying, hey, baptism is something I've got to do. It's I'm going to make this a work. This is a good work that I'm going to do. And it is not a work that we do. It's a gift that God gives us. Yeah, you certainly have works that you are to do and that you have been given to do, but there are some things that where God says, hey, now listen, just let me take care of this because I'm going to do it way better than you and I would just rather that you not screw it up because I won't screw it up, so let me take care of it. You have these other things to do and you'll do those fine, but when I tell you that I'm going to take care of something, you just let me take care of it, okay? That's why I say don't try to be more religious than Jesus. If Jesus says something, just say, okay. The worst thing you can do is try to be more religious than Jesus. This is the thing. The difference between you and Jesus, well, really, the difference between Jesus and everybody else is that Jesus does what he's told. <laughs> and you don't. Uh, but this is, you can boil down anybody's theology by really asking the question, who is the, who is the subject? Who is the actor? Who's the one that's performing the act? That's how you can boil down theology. If you look at that and the answer to the question is, well, ultimately, it's me that is the actor, that I am the one who's doing something, then you're off base. Uh, but if you ask the question, who's the one doing the act? Who is the actor? And the answer is, oh, well, the Lord is the one who's doing it. Then all of a sudden, hey, things are, gonna, things are looking up. Things are okay. If I'm the one that's doing it, th think about how many ways that it, I, I could screw it up. Um, but if the Lord's doing it, then we have something sure and certain. Hey, why don't you need to be rebaptized? Because well, the Lord knows what he's doing. And when he baptizes you, it'll stick. You don't need to do it again. The Lord doesn't screw up a baptism. Now, if I were doing a baptism, uh, if I were the one in charge of it, yeah, sure, I maybe would screw it up. And then we'd have to go, well, shoot, maybe this one didn't stick. Maybe we need to do it again. And then that one didn't stick. Well, you know, I'm still sinning after this. Well, well, doggone it, maybe I need to believe harder. Maybe I need to trust harder. Maybe I need to do something or something or something. I need, maybe my life's starting to go downhill. Maybe I need to be re-consecrated, re-dedicated, all of this. Then it's all on you. And then what have you done but created an endless maze of little hoops and check boxes that you have to jump through and mark off, and then that's your whole life. And you never take the time to stop, sit back and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if God took care of this for me? And I could just receive the gifts that he was giving and I could just say thank you and thank you and thank you for the rest of my life and receive all the good gifts and then run out and live like the Christian that he wants me to be? There's a, yeah, this is kind of uh, an offshoot of this, and that is uh, within Gail's extended family there, there was a, um, a church service where the small child was dedicated. Mm -hmm. And... And I'm, and they come and say, oh, we had a dedication. And the person told me, we, we did dedicated child. It was very nice. Well, what's dedication? I mean, it's not baptism. Why not go ahead and have the right of baptism? It's sort of like taking your child to God and saying, hey, I know you really want this child to be your own and get all the good things that you have, uh, and we're going to show them to you now. 
and we're going to tell you that someday he'll get to be yours, just not now. And then you run away and God goes, no, wait, but I want him now. Think about all the good stuff I could do for him even now. And it goes back then to dedicating his work, not a reception of faith. Yeah, well, and oftentimes the dedication is done with the uh, intent that when the child is old enough or reaches the so-called age of accountability or has has enough mental capacity to make a confession of his own, well, then then they can be baptized. But that you can't make a bap or you can't receive a baptism unless you can prove that you have reason and intellect. Uh, I I really think that baptizing infants makes a great confession about the. The fact that your reason and your intellect are not as great as you think they are, they're not as powerful as you think they are, and they don't matter as much as you think that they do. Faith and reason are not the same thing. And uh, the gifts of God are received by faith, not by your reason. You can, listen, if, if you were only allowed to receive any of the gifts of God when you, were, when you reached a point where you understood everything rationally to its fullest extent, I would never, ever, 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 ever be able to give you anything. And there would be no reason ever to come to church because you'd never get anything. One other thing in, in the, uh, the reading there from uh, um, where, where Mary went to visit uh, um, Zachariah and, and mm-hmm. Elizabeth, um, or specifically Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, the scripture in one, in one translation says, leaped mm-hmm. at the sound of her voice. Um, there's a... There's a I think there's a um, there's a living, breathing human being there, and that the issue of abortion, which is I think one of the terrible, terrible things that's happened in this country, but it's um, um, going to be a difficult struggle because. People that are not of faith to see that do not accept Scripture as any kind of norm to lead to live their life. Mm-hmm. They follow the law because it's the law, but they don't see um, God working in us. They don't believe there's a God or, mm-hmm. or, uh, or whatever. So that. Um, if as a country we're ever going to come to terms with the, the terrible act of abortion, we've got to convince people that that are unchristian. They've got to, we've got to somehow or another. I shouldn't say use the word convert them, but we've got to make them understand that we as Christian people see that as a crime, not just uh, a, a desire that a woman. It's my body, so I'm going to do whatever I want to with it. You know and. Faithful people don't see it that way. Yeah, well, and I mean, on that issue, I think that science ends up being our friend because there's been so much advancement that you can see the development of a child and know in no uncertain terms that that really is a that is a living, breathing human being that is growing there. It's not just a collection of goop. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this one last thing too about uh, infants in the womb and the leaping of John the Baptist. Um, My daughter leapt in the womb every single Sunday when the sermon began. And when she was born, she already knew the voice of her father. 
So I think it's a really strange position to take in theology and in life when you say that a child is fully capable of hearing and learning the voice of their parents, but that somehow or other wouldn't recognize the voice of their Lord. My five-month-old daughter already knows when the Lord's Prayer is being prayed and talks during the Lord's Prayer because she knows that that's the time when the prayer is being prayed. Mm -hmm. Doesn't do it for other things, but she knows those words because of the repetition, um, because of even in the womb, hearing the words and having the words worked, that there's something there. She recognizes the voice of her father and she vo recognizes the voice of her father. And I think that it's sort of a strange position, again, to take, to say, well, yeah, they'll recognize the voice of their parents, but they certainly wouldn't recommend, recognize the voice of Jesus. No, no. So, anyway, other questions? Okay, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, take treats home if you want them. Again, like I said before, the fewer treats that are still on that plate are the fewer treats that we have to take back home. <laughs> so go ahead and uh, see you tomorrow.